Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast by the Anna McCarthy Foundation, where we go behind the stories of a circular economy. My name is Seb, and this is part three of a series where we're recounting highlights from our March 31st Innovation Day event at the Roundhouse, where we shone the spotlight on circular economy innovation, where it's happening already, its impact, and how do we accelerate the scale of it. Welcome back to my co-host, Jules, who's back for the third episode. Now, Jules, you've hosted that Roundhouse event, and now you're hosting this podcast, so you're pretty soon going to be quite famous. And I was wondering, are you going to be the sort of person who stops and takes photos of people when they ask them ask that of you, or will you just kind of shun them and say, sorry, not for me? I will 100% take photos with them if they would like. That's fantastic. I'm currently mostly photobombing other people's photos and asking if I can do you, have that. Do you ask them to tag you? Just to uh, yeah, build exactly. a profile. Ask them if they can sort of like include me in some way or give it, give me access to it. Nice. I like it. And well, I'm actually glad to be welcomed back for the third time to the podcast. And in this series, we've explored a lot so far. We've thought about food in the context of circular economy innovation. We've explored new fashion business models, thinking about how we can make money without making more clothes. But it's not just food and it's not just fashion. We're now going to dive into regenerative materials. Yeah. And I mean, I know almost nothing. You know a lot, but not everything. Um, so actually, in this episode, for the most part, we're actually we're handing over to the experts on this topic to facilitate the conversation. Liz Corbin from Materium was joined in conversation by her colleague, Alicia Gamalevich, Julia Marsh from Sway, and Ihab Ehab Saeed from Biome. And I think it's fair to say it's a good job we're letting the experts take the lead here. We're going to hear about different innovators. We're going to get super practical and hear about they're implementing this big concept like regenerative design, regenerative materials. And it all starts with Liz, who asks each guest to introduce a bit about what their organisation actually does. So this is often clouded as the third principle of EMF's definition of a circular economy. But um, I'm here to, to ask you all, um, how do we really start to do this? How do we shift the current system towards one that is regenerative? And how do we do that at the speed and at the scale that this decade in particular really needs? Um, and also, what's the potential of the regenerative material space. We hear a lot about it. There's a lot of really great booths. Um, but what's the potential? I'm lucky enough to be joined by three incredible companies who are at the, the front running, kind of at the edge of this space. So really keen to hear all of your approaches. Alicia, let's start with you. Thanks, Liz. Um, well, we take a, at Materium, we take an approach to this issue um, that is powered by open data and AI. And what that means is we're trying to do basically provide the equivalent of 100 years of R&D that's gone into petroleum plastics in the, material, in the regenerative material space in the, in the space of a decade. And to do that, we need the best and latest technologies in, in AI and robotics to power that, that challenge, um, that transition. So we have um, a couple of main technologies we rely on. First of all, we're collecting the world's data 
on regenerative materials in terms of the recipes, actually how to make these materials and their performance properties. We're talking here about 500,000 or so formulations, um, unique formulations that are in the scientific literature. So we're pooling all of that together and providing that in an open database that will hopefully provide this market pull um, and enable basically lower barriers to, to massive market entry is the goal of that part of it. Um, and then on top of that, we're developing a marketplace that will connect regenerative material companies um, to consumer brands on the basis of very specific performance requirements that those are, are necessary. Um, and in order to optimize the material, because often it's hard to have like off-the-shelf examples from, um, that are ready to plug and play, we're in partnership with Superlabs. We've developed um, a robotic platform that basically iterates and cycles through 24-7 the incredible uh, like hundreds of millions of different formulations that you could have in order to make a material perfect for your product. And so with an AI and robotic engine, you can zoom in on exactly the formulation that meets your needs. And so that kind of optimization engine, together with the open data, we're aiming to kind of take the development cycle for onboarding a new material from years to months. From years to months. Let's hear from uh, one such company. What's Sway's approach, Julia? So at Sway, we're on a mission to replenish the planet with the regenerative power of seaweed, and we're starting with thin film plastics. So Sway makes replacements for those very annoying packaging items that just can't seem to be replaced with a package-free or recyclable or reusable solution. And we, we use seaweed uh, to create life at every step of the supply chain. Uh, seaweed fans in the audience, potentially, already? Yes? Um, seaweed is one of the most inherently regenerative, abundant feedstocks on Earth. It grows on every coastline in the world. It has been doing so for one billion years. It, reply, it supplies 50% of Earth's oxygen. It provides food and habitat to life, both underwater and on land. And so it's our goal to just extend that impact by also utilizing that feedstock to replace uh, plastics and plastic pollution. And it was mentioned earlier today, but we know we're on the right track. Uh, just a couple days ago, we were announced as uh, one of the finalists in the Tom Ford Plastic Innovation Prize. And this is significant because there were eight finalists. We were one of them. Five of the eight finalists were seaweed-based solutions, including Notpla, who is also here today. So there's huge validation for seaweed materials and for regenerative or benevolent materials as a whole. It's a really exciting time. Yeah. The power of seaweed to power this shift. <laughs> Ehab, what's Biome's approach? Well, Biome's a multi-award winning research and development-led company that I founded in 2016. And we're driven by a very simple philosophy, to allow nature to lead innovation and only have a positive or regenerative impact on everything we touch. And that philosophy is manifested through all of our product offerings from our bio-based materials, which you can use in the building envelope and in the interior of the building, as well as um, our as range of services that we offer to enable large multinationals to decarbonize through our technologies, and as well uh, a range of construction systems that are inspired by nature. All of our technologies are driven by the aim of creating regenerative systems, which is a very uh, you know, big claim, but it is something that we have to work towards by measuring the right um, inputs and outputs of our products and of our systems and eventually work towards that regenerative um, uh, space. Mm. 
So, gang, regenerative. <laughs> it's a tall order. I think someone referred to it yesterday as like the holy grail that we're all really trying to get to. She's in the front row. <laughs> I'll give you 10%. Yeah. Um, the holy grail that we're all trying to get to, but gosh, it's, it's a challenge. How are you all getting practical about really the pursuit of regenerative? I think it's a journey, right? It's not an end state. It's a journey. Um, how are you getting practical and what are some of the factors that you're prioritizing? So at Materium, we are trying to focus on regenerative by design at a, from a material perspective. And a lot of effort and time is put into assessing the impact of materials once they're made. What we're trying to do is develop a screening mechanism and a verification process to actually assess the regenerative potential of materials before that, when, by design. And so we look at ingredients, we look at um, the actual chemical processes involved in making the material, and we align those with life-friendly chemistry principles to understand if they are basically as, as nature would make a material. Uh, and so therefore, by design, it's, it can be um, degraded after end of life. And the importance of that approach is to get really practical with the idea of regeneration Specifically, when you think about the material after end of life, so we actually once you know that it's a regenerative material by design, you can then quantify the nutrient potential of that material for any given system you want that material to go into after end of life. So, for instance, into um, agriculture, um, you need to know the the potential positive impact of that material that could go into composting or go into the system. So that's the kind of the approach that we're taking is really getting detailed and quantifying the nutrients of that material right from the beginning so that we can make it from a whole life cycle be a positive impact. And Materium's actually been an amazing ally in developing those kinds of practices that material companies like ours can use. So an example of this would be in our sourcing strategy, seaweed is a novel feedstock for biomaterials. How can we create standards akin to what's already been established, maybe like the FSC standards for land forestry and replicate those for ocean forestry so that we can be held accountable to the claims that we're making about our impact, both ecologically and socially? So with seaweed specifically, some of you may be familiar, there's this capacity to sequester immense amounts of carbon to uh, restore underwater ecosystems, uh, encourage biodiverse life, reverse the effects of deadly ocean ocean acidification, and then also improve livelihoods by providing coastal um, work opportunities um, for communities that have maybe been affected by overfishing or, or some of the other effects of climate change. How can we measure that and how can we replicate those kinds of measurements to other regenerative materials? And one potential could be the measurement of recirculation of value, recirculation of value, and the second could be promoting a diversification, not just of uh, the region where you're sourcing the material from, but also the types of the same feedstock which could be utilized. So working with different types of species in different regions might build ecosystem resilience and also supply resilience. Uh, this is something that we're starting to develop. I think there's so much potential. I love that not only circulating value, but creating more yeah. and really looking at alternative forms. Ehab. Well, I think when we talk about regenerative impact and in particular measuring regenerative impact, <clears throat> 
think it's really important to appreciate the complexity of the systems in, on Earth, the Earth systems, um, the biosphere, which we're a part of, the atmosphere and the geosphere before us, and appreciate that all of these systems are very interconnected and are working together to create the world we live in today. And when we create a product which is, in fact, a system in itself or a, a production process, that system then plays a part within that larger Earth system. So when we're talking about regenerative impact, we have to build benchmarks of where the environment is currently, and we're getting really good at it at the moment with the advancements in uh, AI and artificial um, computing. And in that approach, we're able to then understand where our product or system is actually having an impact, measure that impact, and then be able to attribute the impact in a much more um, uh, specific way. Because I think attribution is also a really important thing. There are so many different um, societal and um, economic systems at play so that when you build a production uh, facility, for example, that's driven by the, um, uh, the aim of regeneration within a community, you want to make sure that you're able to measure that in a way and attribute it to your impact in a way that is valid, in a way that is, um, you know, can be traceable. Seaweed, mushrooms, big open source databases tracking hundreds and hundreds of materials. This is all happening today, Jules. It is pretty amazing, but there are still some questions. I'm sorry, we're always asking more questions. What does it actually look like to scale that? And do we need to reimagine what scale means in a different model? I mean, that's a great question. I know it's something that's going to come out of this conversation. Like, is scale really one massive supply chain just growing and growing and growing? Well, back to Liz, who is asking exactly that question. Scaling regenerative material solutions in particular have really proven challenging to date. Um, so how can we scale uh, these solutions in a way that is really commercially viable, but also really makes the most of the environmental and social benefits as well of these materials? Yeah, I think the, the question of scale is incredibly important in this space. And I think we need to first break out of a traditional paradigm of thinking about scale, which is scale up in one location and then mass manufacture and export. And these, because the nature of the feedstock is really important to understand is that when you're looking at biomass, it's usually very distributed and quite heterogeneous. And scaling up in a one location can risk over-exploitation, which is very problematic. And so we need to think about a new paradigm for scaling, which is more about propagation of solutions. It's more about scaling out or horizontally. And from that perspective, there's a couple of really intriguing challenges in the space that um, we're looking at. The first, as I mentioned before, is the heterogeneity or variation in feedstock. And what I mean there is take food waste, for instance. Food waste will differ in character depending on the geographic location, the season, the specific source. And if you're, for instance, a company making PHA from food waste, you'll need to get a grip on that heterogeneity in order to be able to scale across multiple locations and therefore therefore have security of supply, be able to produce a uniform product at the end of the day, um, but not risk over-exploitation. And so characterizing that heterogeneity is actually an incredibly interesting data problem, which is something that at Materium we're really passionate about getting a grip on. So 
Um, that's uh, one of the, I think, the most important things is one, changing the paradigm, but then really tackling these challenges that, th that are at the heart of this new field of, 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 uh, of innovation. Mm. Scaling horizontally, not vertically. That might be the way nature intended. Julia. Well, there's the specific approach that Sway has, which is to design for existing infrastructure. The idea being, how can we enable solutions like ours to scale rapidly in the appropriate situations and replicate, um, not just within the United States where we're based, but elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so designing for existing infrastructure, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but trying to swap out the material and bring the plastics manufacturers on our side. Um, <laughs> um, but the larger, more enabling environment for scale has to do with policy and folks' attitudes towards biomaterials in general. There are very justified con uh, conceptions that uh, there are challenges related to compostable and biodegradable materials, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a place in the ecosystem of packaging solutions that we're turning towards. So an enabling policy environment that um, is more nuanced in prioritizing bio-based materials as well as rapidly compostable or um, marine degradable materials would make it easier for truly regenerative materials to succeed in the market. And it's, it's such an amazing opportunity. If, if materials like ours can scale and, and eHubs can scale, yeah. we get to address multiple planetary threats simultaneously. And that's what this whole thing is about. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, very similarly to what's already been said, when it comes to scaling a regenerative technology, um, you kind of have to think in a very regenerative way. And the scaling uh, approach or the uh, scaling strategy can very much be inspired by the natural world. Now, we work with mycelium, or the root structure of fungus, and we're able to train these uh, biological organisms to consume all kinds of waste streams and produce all kinds of uh, high-performance products. Um, and during that process, some of the processes could be very long-term in terms of the actual process um, going to completion. But you can make a business model that is regenerative, that enables you to still extract and harness products from the long-term process and make it viable in the immediate term. And that's a hack, I think, that we've discovered that will enable a lot of organizations that are just scaling and startups to, instead of thinking of um, scaling as something they would have to do on their own, to do it in a collaborative manner, in a distributive manner, and then uh, do it in a way that's inspired by these incredible organisms that are all around us. So circular economy innovation is really happening now. And these innovations, some of which might even seem a little bit futuristic, they are hitting the market today. And the stories of Materium, of Sway, of Biome demonstrate that. And there's this huge opportunity to scale and deliver some of the great benefits that we've heard about in previous episodes of this series. And these are just some examples in this sector and across the various places where circular economy is happening. There is a lot more out there. And Liz and her guests began to get into that topic of scale towards the end of their conversation. And that's exactly where we're going to be zooming in on next week. We've got a lot of guests that will be joining us from a wide range of backgrounds. There's large corporates, city-based policymakers, the investment sector, and of course, more startups. I'm really pleased to say, Jules, that you are going to be back next week. For the you've final time. You've made it, maybe not the final time ever, but you've made it through the whole of this series. Um, so that's something for our audience to look forward to. Our Hopefully. Listeners to look forward to. 
thanks so much for listening to this podcast um do not forget to subscribe to our podcast which on whichever channel you're listening to rate it comment it do the good things that help more people to find out about the circular economy and we'll see you for part four of this series see you there